Understanding the Origins of the Cycle of Shame, today on the Faithful and True Podcast. today to talk to you about the second half of our discussion of Greg Miller's uh, research program. And uh, we're joined again by Deb Laser, our director here at Faithful and True. Uh, Greg, you started things off with our last podcast in telling us about this research project of yours. Yeah. So again, um, the the research really began as I uh, began to interact with men here at Faithful and True, coming to our workshops Um, And what we do know is that the energy of addiction does come from our experiences of the past and how we move towards those and move through those and and what we were exposed to. So we wanted to explore that. But what we began to see is in the original addiction model, there was an emphasis on trauma, maybe the big letter T, trauma. And so it was um, about men who had experienced some level of abuse But what we were seeing in time was that there was this other population that was coming, typically younger, who would say they really hadn't experienced any kind of abuse. So we did want to explore what were some of the factors that brought them here. And so it was from that conversation with them and with others that we began to create a survey so that we could maybe answer the question in a clearer way about what were some of the factors that were driving their addiction, what were some of the issues that were was creating shame. And one of the things that's true is research is not new here at Faithful and True, that the program here has been based upon and built upon the research that has been done for decades. And we're very thankful for that as a part of our legacy. Well, one of the things I love about what you decided to do, Greg, was to not just use our population here at Faithful and True, although we're, we are exclusively dealing with a population that is trying to heal from sexual compulsivity or addiction. Um, but your research, because it's peer-reviewed, was opened up to um, anyone and everyone out there in the world, and actually you ended up including women in your research. Mm-hmm. So that um, while we started with some presuppositions that came out of our experiences here, uh, you, you went on to do your research to include a wide variety of people. Right. So um, we love the fact that in some ways the research has validated what we're seeing here. And so that's what we want to hear from you about yeah. today. Yeah. What we try to do is cast a pretty wide net, um, get as many people as involved. And one of the things I just want to say is that those who chose to, to take the survey were very grateful for it for them because it was pretty intense. Um, It took about 20 to 30 minutes to take, and so we knew that it was a significant um, time commitment, but we ended up with um, 234 valid surveys, so we feel like we got a a good number of people that participated. Um, Of those, um, two-thirds were men, and as you mentioned, we um, included women, and a third were women. And what was interesting is we did see some differences, but we also saw a lot of similarities, especially for women that would identify as having some sort of sexual compulsivity, that the similarities between the men who struggle with sexual compulsivity and women were very similar, that there weren't significant differences. Um, We also um, had a large portion of them that were Christians. In fact, um, 95% of the people who participated identified themselves as Christian. um, And uh, we wanted to acknowledge that, so most of the people that were filling out the survey were coming from some sort of faith-based experience. And in fact, 
the vast majority identified that they were actively involved in their faith. And one of the subtle things that just came across was for those people that believe that their faith is enough to kind of heal them from their addiction, the survey seems to indicate that that's not true. We had a large number of people that were very active in their faith that would define themselves as devoted and still struggling. And so it's that understanding that I often say that um, being a Christian doesn't give us superhero power. We (laughs) wish that it would. We wish that we could just snap our finger and our faith would be enough to bring the change in our life that we want. But Christianity isn't a superhero power, it's an invitation. And it's what we do with that invitation that will determine the transformation that we experience. Um, Something else that we saw was that a large number of the people that did participate would say that they had been exposed to pornography, and in fact that they still struggle with pornography. Um, 64% of the people indicated that they were exposed to pornography before the age of 13, and 50% indicated they saw images that involved than just more than one person. So 50% of them talked about the first time they were exposed to something. It was a little bit more graphic. Um, 48%, almost half, indicated that they had not gone longer than six months without viewing porn since the first time that they were exposed. Um, 84% indicated that they believed that porn is a negative and destructive influence. So what we have is a population of people who are devoted to their faith. They define themselves as Christians. They were exposed to pornography. Almost half had not gone longer than six months without looking at it. And yet most of them identified it as this is a destructive thing. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I want people, especially churches, to understand is you don't need to convince people that porn is a bad thing, especially those that are in the church. They know that intuitively. And many times those messages that are intended to help, like porn is bad, simply reinforces the shame that they already have about it. So it's not just letting them know that it's bad, believing that that's going to be enough to change, but it's inviting them into into a journey that will make change possible. I think one last statistic you had here, which is really interesting, is that half of them indicated that it was either difficult or almost impossible to resist Mm -hmm. pornography once they've been exposed to that. Yeah. As as I was reading that, it just reminded me, I often tell men that I work with um, that it's not that they are weak, it's that the drug is strong. And until we start taking seriously how powerful the drug is, how it works in all aspects of who we are, and, and I often talk about the fact that the sexual drug is such a powerful drug because God created sex to be a comprehensive experience. That sex is just not a physical thing that we do, but it's about who we are emotionally and physically and spiritually and mentally. So in God's wisdom, God created sex to be a comprehensive experience. So if we're going to use that as a medication, it's going to be a comprehensive medication, which go- which means the drug is going to be stronger. Mm-hmm. And so that that information of how they were struggling and how difficult it was for them to give up is a good indicator of how powerful the drug is. So will you get into some of the these other components that you were researching to see if they actually affected the, the shame that was developing Absolutely. in men and women? So we talked last time in the podcast about um, invasion and abandonment. And invasion is when a line is crossed and something happens to a child um, that shouldn't have happened. 
abandonment is when a line isn't crossed and there's a need that the child has um, and that need goes unmet. And so we did look at that. We measured invasion in the home and out of the home. We measured abandonment in the home and out of the home. And what we see was all, all of those categories created shame. So you, you may say, I came from a good family, and that may absolutely be true, and you experience some abandonment outside of your home, or you experience some invasion outside of your home, that would be a contributing factor to the shame. So, you know, we, we talked about this in the last podcast, but this idea of if we're going to understand our story, we must look beyond our home. We need to be aware of all of the things that we're contributing to our, our, our sense of well-being, our experiences, um, those negative things, those subtle things that could easily produce shame. And I, I just want to take a moment to talk about shame for those who didn't hear us last, last time. But shame is this negative belief about myself that something's wrong with me. Uh, it's about my identity. We teach at the workshop that shame is about my identity. It's what I believe about myself. And when we are in our shame, we are hopeless because intuitively we know we can't change who we are. And so once I get stuck in my shame, um, it's difficult for me to get out of it because um, it's about who I am. You know, I, I often tell men that for those of you that are trying to shame your way into recovery, it will never work. Because in fact, shame almost guarantees that we will return to our acting out because we feel shame before we act out, we feel shame after we act out. But we're, when we're in that zone, when we're in the fog of lust, when, when, when we're experiencing that addiction energy, we get a temporary reprieve from the shame. And we see that as a relief, and many times that's what sends us back to the acting out. Mm -hmm. So as we're talking about these things that contribute to our shame, we also just want to validate that the shame itself is one of the powerful drivers in the addiction. It makes sense then, doesn't it, Greg, With which is what we believe that isolation is the, one of the greatest enemies of well-being and mm -hmm. sexual health. And I know Mark always said that, and you teach that as well. And what we know is because shame is about our own belief system mm -hmm. about ourselves, we're not, we're going to really struggle with changing that unless we have other people to help us look at what is true about ourselves. And and thus the old saying, you know, sh shedding shame comes from sharing shame. Mm -hmm. And we need other people in this process if we're going to make changes in our belief system. Absolutely. Yeah. The idea of community is not optional. Yeah. It's not like I can either choose plan A or plan B and plan A includes yeah. community and plan B doesn't. Community is essential because I must be seen in order to shed that shame. Uh, yeah. We talk about the fact that shedding shame occurs when we are living in our truth in safe community. And so that absolutely is a part of the healing process. So um, some of the other things that we looked at, um, and these were some terms and phrases that I came up with, is um, we looked at comparison-based identity. Um, that anytime we begin to believe that our value and our identity comes from how I compare to other people, that's going to intensify my shame. And we talk about at the workshop this idea of the wise man. And this is, and again, I want to say everything that we're talking about is also true for women. Um, for those women who are listening that may be struggling with their own sexual compulsivity, um, I hope that they will be able to recognize that um, there is hope for them, there is truth for them. And what we discovered in the survey was the similarities between the men and the women are significant. And so, 
Um, as we're thinking about this comparison-based identity, the wise man or the wise woman finds their value and their identity in their uniqueness in who God created them to be. Um, this, the standard is themselves. You know, I often tell men, I have everything I need to be the man that God created me to be, and I have all the gregness that it takes. But as soon as I have this message that I need to be someone else, I'm not going to be successful. And so that comparison-based identity tells me that my value, my identity, my safety will come from how I compare to others. And in fact, we created a scale um, that we tried to measure. We asked questions. And again, we didn't ask someone, do you think you have a comparison-based identity? We tried to identify the attributes of that um, and and tried to kind of expose that through choices and behaviors and beliefs. So we asked people about their social media um, activity. Do you, are you conscious of how many likes you get? Are you aware of what's going on in other people's lives? Um, are you conscious of um, if someone gets a raise or how much money somebody may be making? Because we wanted it to be more of an assessment of really where do I find my value and my identity? There are a lot of things that contribute to that, aren't mm-hmm. there? And um, are you finding then also that this this did correlate with in a lot of increased shame? Absolutely. Yeah. That the more I have a comparison-based identity, the more my shame is going to be present. And it can't be resolved as long as I believe that my value, my identity is going to come from how I compare yeah. to somebody else. It, it's, a, it's a tremendous human quality that I think we all have to compare, isn't right. it? Right. Well, so and, in some ways, a great spiritual journey that we're on to really believe the truth about our uniqueness and to stop the comparison thing. You know, I, I know in working with wives who have been betrayed, they struggle with the mm-hmm. same things, even though they may not call themselves an addict. I think the need to, to cover the shame that comes from I'm not as good as or as smart as or as pretty as um, is an ongoing struggle for them as well. Right, and the great irony is we, we live in this comparison-based identity in an attempt to create safety. Mm-hmm. Because as I compare myself, I don't want to expect too much, but I also don't want to expect too little. And so I'm constantly seeing what is mine, what do I deserve, what can I have, what is attainable, what is too much. I don't want to expect too much because then I'll be disappointed. And so it's all about that attempt to create safety as I find my place. But the whole system is flawed because my place isn't in comparison to others, but it's living in the truth of who God created me to be. You know, one of the things that we saw is exposure to pornography itself is a significant cause of shame. And um, this is a standalone factor, that whether or not I grew up believing that pornography was good or bad or helpful, what we saw, though, is when a child is exposed to pornography, one of the things that increases is this comparison-based identity. And it also increases my own body shame. So for those men and women that were exposed to pornography when they were young, what we know is it's going to increase their comparison-based identity. It's also going to increase their body shame, and it's also going to increase the possibility of experimentation with other children. And what we know is comparison-based identity, body shame, and experimentation with other, um, uh, other children is going to increase my shame. So again, we're seeing how it's not this one big experience of trauma that a lot of people are looking for, but it's more subtle things, these smaller storms that come together to create the superstorm of shame. 
So tell us about some of the other components, the more subtle components that you're finding. Well, one, one of the things that we also measured is what I refer to as performance-based faith. I, I really struggled to come up with a language. But one of the things that we saw, and it showed in our, our, our research, is that many of the, the men that are coming to our workshop and would say that they are people of faith. And one of the things that we've seen is that in some ways, their experience of faith has not been helpful for their healing because there have either been subtle or very clear messages that their faith is identified or um, evaluated based upon their behavior. Another way to say it, it's a behavior-based faith. So if you live this way, if you make these choices, if you do these things, then you are a person of faith. You are righteous. And what ends up happening is for the participant in that, they begin to learn early on, this is what a good boy or good girl does. This is what a bad boy or bad girl does. And we learn to hide the things that we're doing that are outside of the faith. I often say to the men, the challenge with our faith experience is we, we are taught how to live before we can live it, and we're taught what to believe before we could believe it. So we're always perceiving ourselves as outside of the good Christian experience. Mm-hmm. So we ask questions, you know, did you grow up in a faith experience that, that um, rewarded you for good choices or good behavior? Um, did you grow up in a, a church where there was a negative talk about people who made poor choices? Um, did you grow up in a faith where a family or a person was shunned or rejected because of a choice? Um, did you ever have someone um, removed from your church because of a lifestyle choice? And again, we tried. We didn't ask people, did you grow up in a performance-based faith? We tried to ask people questions about their experiences so that we could see what an influence that was on their own lives. Mm-hmm. So not only is this contributing to a great amount of shame, but it also seems to me that it starts that that really dangerous, slippery slope of lying mm-hmm. in order to cover up that part of you that isn't living up to those expectations. Right. And lying, as we know, is, is such a dangerous, hurtful part when we start mixing addiction in with relationship. Right. As soon as there's a standard that I believe I have to measure up to, whatever the gap is between the standard and my reality, that's where we're tempted to hide. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, If you put some of these factors together, so I'm a child that's been exposed to pornography, that's intensifying my shame, and now I'm in a performance-based faith environment that's telling me my behavior defines my righteousness, and I know that looking at pornography is bad, then that has the potential to not just intensify my shame, but send me into secrecy, which then intensifies my shame. You know, there can be this initial causal experience, but then there are all these catalysts that uniquely come together that intensify it. You know, I I never did well in chemistry, but I do know that the catalyst was the thing that was added that intensified the reaction. Well, that's what I think happens with our shame. Mm -hmm. Greg, do you know... um, if any of the participants in your research were members of the clergy? No, and that's, we didn't ask that question. Um, and the, the survey was completely anonymous. They did it online, so we don't know anything about the individuals. Um, and we didn't ask specifically what anybody's profession was. So well, we don't know if there were some clergy member that participated. My assumption is there, there probably was. Um, 
uh, and one of the things that's true is here at Faithful and True, we do have a large number of people who come through that are involved in professional ministry. Right. Um, and so my assumption would be that some of them probably participated too. Well, as you were talking about faith and, you know, and, and coming from that whole aspect, uh, just knowing that we've had a number of clients over the years from any variety of, of faith backgrounds, uh, that were clergy mm-hmm. members, because so often we'll have a guy say, why aren't we hearing this being discussed uh, in, in church on right. Sunday? And what's true is, there are the churches that are discussing it, and I just think in some of the ways that they're doing it, it may not be helpful, mm-hmm. because again, it's reinforcing this is about a behavior that has to change versus a wound that needs to be healed. Right. Mm-hmm. So quickly, I know we might be running out of time, but are there other elements that you looked at? that? We well, we also looked at um, uh, discipline styles. And um, in fact, that was a suggestion that you put in that was brilliant, I might say. <laughs> I wanted you to speak about it. <laughs> <laughs> because um, what, what we did see is the discipline style that was used in the home was a significant contributor to the shame. And whatever language you use, if it was more aggressive, if it was more intense, uh, if it was more authoritative... Um, or authoritarian, um, then that increases the shame that the child experiences. Um, the more fear that was associated, I would say, with the, the discipline process, the more shame that the child um, carries. And I often say the, the gift that we're going to give to our children is our own shame. So that whatever shame the parent was experiencing and bringing to the discipline experience and whatever fear the ch- a parent was experiencing and bringing to the discipline experience is going to intensify the child's shame. Mm-hmm. Well, I know we're going to show um, an illustration here of how you've expanded the um, variants, shall we say? We're learning right. to use yes. that word in our mm-hmm. COVID culture today. Right. That we not only have a, um, a major way that COVID-19 has been uh, has struck all of us, but now we're looking at all the variants that are coming along, and I think I think your research is pointing to that very thing. Mm-hmm. We have multiple ways that are creating shame, which then leads to the preoccupation and uh, eventually addictive behaviors. Right. And one other thing that I would say is you know, the, the role that the pornography exposure itself plays in the shame that the child experiences is significant. Um, we asked a lot of questions about that first exposure to pornography, and it's not surprising in this younger population, and the target audience were men and women between the ages of 20 and 35, that the age that they were first exposed was young, um, the first time they got a, a cell phone was young, or a smartphone, um, and then what we saw was um, the younger I was when I got a smartphone, typically when I got a smartphone, it did increase my use of porn. Mm-hmm. And so that availability piece probably was the game changer. You know, So for those young adults who are wondering, why do I struggle with this? I don't have this huge big T trauma. It's a variety of unique factors that come together that really is foundational upon that early exposure to pornography that was more available simply because of the internet and the fact that now the pornography was coming into my home. Mm -hmm. I often hear that story. I was 10 years old. I was looking for something on the computer about a project about Abraham Lincoln, and I came across my first website. That began, that was a catalyst moment, a significant moment in moving somebody forward. Mm -hmm. 
Can you tell us, you know, what the significance will be of, you, of incorporating your research into our counseling, at least here at Faithful and True, or your workshops? How well, do you think you'll do that? the good news is um, so much of what I discovered is already being reinforced and validated here at Faithful and True. Um, that, that idea of healing is about shame reduction. It's about changing those lies, those old negative beliefs. And so one of the things that we're just going to continue to do is emphasize the importance of living in the truth of who God created us mm-hmm. to be. Um, we've mentioned this before, but someone did a, a research project on our workshop. And one of the things that clearly came out was that when men left those three days, they left with less shame. And so that was very affirming that, you know, without this research, we were already intuitively knowing that the way forward is less shame in living in our truth. Um, we're going to, 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 um, to continue to help people understand all the factors that have contributed to their shame. And we're going to start using some of this language, I think, about performance-based faith and comparison-based identity. Though we have been doing it in the past, we're just going to maybe use more energy to talk about it, but also use maybe new visuals to help explain it. Because mm-hmm. what I hope is at the end of the workshop, when a man leaves, he leaves able to answer the question of, ah, oh, I do belong here. I did come from a good family. And it makes sense, given what I've discovered, that I would be struggling with this. You know, it's not because I'm weird. It's not because I'm gross. It's not because I'm sh- uh, uh, um, worthless. It's because of these things that I was exposed to. It's because of these contributing factors. And then one other thing I would say is, it is in community that we reduce our shame. And community has always been a significant part of Faithful and True, either at the workshops or in the ongoing care that we provide here. And that podcast that you refer to was uh, just from a short while ago with uh, Rick Underwood. So if you go to our uh, Faithful and True website and click on the podcast, you can listen or view that podcast. We invite you to visit our brand new Faithful and True YouTube channel that we're quite excited about. Uh, Go on there and subscribe and uh, like our podcast, share them with your friends, and uh, uh, that uh, kind of reinforces everything we're talking about here and all of the help that we're trying to provide. Uh, We'd like to thank Greg for sharing the results of his uh, research project, and it's powerful stuff. We're very, um, we're blessed and encouraged by what you report to us today. Uh, Deb, thank you for helping us get those facts out there and and opening up the opportunity for Greg to uh, explain them to us. So uh, go to that YouTube channel for Faithful and True, Faithful and True Podcasts, and until we see you again next week, We hope that you will have a week that's filled with many blessings and great vision.